Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the history of remote viewing. With me is Dr. Paul Smith. A philosopher, a remote viewer, author of Reading the Enemy's Mind and the Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, a founder and twice president of the International Remote Viewing Association. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted to have you with me here in Albuquerque. Thank you for making the trip. When we talk about remote viewing these days, there's a certain amount of confusion because we're at a point now where there are, I don't know, a dozen or more teachers of remote viewing and and different approaches. Some approaches are actually antagonistic, uh, mildly at Mm -hmm. least, to each other and uh, and certainly different. There are different uh, approaches. I think it would be very useful to review the current status and uh, the history of the field. And certainly you're very well positioned to do that with me. Thank you. Yeah, that would be, uh, I know a lot of people get very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these different flavors of remote viewing. Well, what's the difference yeah. between TRV and CRV and SRV and XRV and YRV and ZRV, <laughs> right? Yeah. <clears throat> and and uh, that confusion, if you know the actual genealogy of it, it becomes unconfused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can kind of decide which one of these you may be interested in following. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's start with this uh, as as a little bit of history with which I'm not yet mm-hmm. really familiar. How did you get recruited into the program? Well, um, my conversion story to remote viewing, right, mm-hmm. um, convinced me that magic does happen. <laughs> you, you, if I remember, you were a major in, yes. in, in the Army. I was, uh, uh, actually, at that time, I was a captain. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, just come back from overseas, uh, tour with the Special Forces, and then went to the uh, career course for captains mm-hmm. uh, out in Arizona. Yeah. And I was at Fort Meade working as a uh, essentially an admin intelligence officer, sort of an analyst. We were processing intelligence reports from the Middle East. And I didn't know this, but I had my military quarters were right next door to Skip Atwater, who was the operations and training officer and actually the founder of the Army program. Mm-hmm. Um, and across the street from Tom McNair, who was one of their most recent uh, remote viewers in training. So... Um, you know, I got to know them. We had fun, all that kind of stuff. And uh, one day, uh, just because of proximity. Yes. Well, right? th- that, that the proximity was the first miracle here, right? Yeah. So, um, but it turned out that I was exactly what they were looking for. So, fate or God or whatever, I don't know, put me in that in that. Uh, How in that was court, it military that, that you were what they were looking for? Well, so. Um, let me, let me tell you how this unfolded. So Skip and Tom came over one day, and they said, we think you might be good at what we do. And I said, well, what do you do? And they said, we can't tell you. I said, well, how do I know I want to do it, right? <laughs> and they said, well, here, we got some tests we're going to give you. And they were you know, pretty much standard psychology and personality profile tests, Myers-Briggs, MMPI, various ones like this. If you, They said, if you score roughly where we think you're going to, we'll, we'll read you onto the program. 
and then you will, uh, then we'll see if you, and then you can volunteer if you want to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I took the tests, and, and uh, here's what was going on behind the scenes. I didn't know about it. So the guidelines that they got from the SRI people, Hal put off, Russ Hart, and those guys, well, yeah. Uh, the guidelines they got was they were looking for uh, military intelligence officers that were well qualified in their, in their skill set, uh, above average intelligence, which despite what people think, Describes most of the military intelligence corps, right? Yeah. Um, but an officer who had uh, side interests that were or experiences that were different than your average officer that involved some kind of creative experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, studio art, I mean, painting or drawing or something like that. Uh, languages, which is a little more common in the intelligence field, but still maybe a, a, an involvement with foreign languages. Um, uh, music mm-hmm. or uh Creative writing, some kind of creative pursuit. Well, it turned out I kind of checked the box on all of those. I had majored in art and put myself through school as a botanical illustrator. Uh, I've been playing guitar for about 20 years by then. Um, I like to write uh, fiction and send off and get it rejected by publishers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was fluent in German and was competent in Arabic and Hebrew. Oh. So they, they knew all that about me. Uh, and and they're they're drawing up this new training contract. They said, "Well, we need we need to have people to plug into these slots." Well, let's try Paul Smith. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, what year was that? This was 1983. Okay, and so the uh, program had been pretty well established yes. at that point. Uh, the Army program had been going on for about five years, five-ish years, mm-hmm. and um, and of course the overall program had been going on for eleven by that point. Um, so. Okay, I apparently scored where they wanted me to, and they invited me over to the the building where they uh, they did all their work. And these were old World War II bu- buildings that were left over. They're supposed to be temporary, and they yeah. were still there. And after you know, nineteen eighty three, what's that? Forty years, forty fifty mm-hmm. years, um, and it, they looked it as well. I go back in the back, and Tom sits me down and says, "Okay, well, here's what we do: we collect intelligence against against foreign threats using a parapsychology discipline known as remote viewing." Uh, we want to know if you'd be willing to volunteer to become a psychic spy. And but you don't have to. You don't have to tell me right now. We can give you twenty four hours. You go home. These are the things you can tell your wife, uh, and uh, and then you can tell us tomorrow. And I said I don't need to. I want to do it. And you look kind of shocked. I guess they've never had anybody actually volunteer that quickly, right? Uh-huh. And uh, and the, what was happening was when I was a kid, I was interested in science fiction and involved extrasensory perception and stuff. Mm-hmm. Then I was in a junior high science project that involved uh, the uh, Zener cards, you know, the wavy oh, yeah. lines and the stars and all that stuff. Right. Uh, total failure. Mm-hmm. No evidence of ESP whatsoever. So yeah. I, at that point, became a bit of a mild skeptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if it's true, but it's not. As Tom is telling me this, this what's going through my head is this. I was used to be interested in this stuff. I thought it wasn't true. They have appropriated money in the federal budget to train people how to do it. And there's this ongoing program. That means it does work. There is no way I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just, I, I didn't even talk to my wife about it. And she was, uh, she was the kind to be very upset if I didn't consult her about major changes. But this, there was no negotiation on this one. I absolutely wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And then they put you through the CRV training mm-hmm. program. That's right. Now, we did other kinds of RV, too. I mean, mm-hmm. our first experiences were uh, what's called extended remote viewing. Um, I won't go into that right now, but um, 
Well, unless maybe I ought to go into well, that Well, right let's just uh, say this. We're talking about 1983. Yeah. We're talking about the remote viewing program at Fort Meade. Yes. Uh, run at that point by Skip Atwater. And the colonel that was, he was, that was his boss. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and uh, you were receiving training in more than one approach. Yes, that's right. Right from the get-go. That's right. Okay. Well, yes. Let's. Let's. We've had uh, several discussions, including previous ones with you mm-hmm. and Lynn Buchanan on CRV. Mm-hmm. So, how do you distinguish extended remote viewing okay. from controlled remote viewing? Well, so extended remote viewing is one of those XRVs that I was talking about yeah. because it's just yet another one on the menu of possible mm-hmm. remote viewing methodologies, right? And so, this is one that that Skip actually developed. And it was a bit of a hybrid from the Monroe Institute technology using sound uh, entrainment to mm-hmm. alter brain states. Um, and we did use those, what they call hemi-sync mm-hmm. uh, tapes. They play different different frequency beats in each ear, and it meets in the middle of your brain. and Causes does all kinds what, of stuff. what we call the binaural B yes. effect. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. So um, they use those to get us into the mode in, in extended remote viewing. Now, the the... The most observable feature of ERV is that the viewer is, in those in that case, laying on a bed. I mean, this was the only military job I ever had where I actually got paid to take a nap. <laughs> yeah, it was great. You'd lay on the bed, and you'd attempt to establish uh, a hypnagogic state, a mind-awake, body-asleep condition. Oh. And uh, at some point, once you were in that mode, uh, you'd have a monitor come in, or an interviewer, they called it for that particular modality. Mm-hmm. An interviewer come in. And he or she, although it was usually Skip, would sit down at a desk that was in there and turn on a red lamp so that it wouldn't disturb you and and be ready to take notes. And then he'd pose you questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, he'd give you the coordinate. You'd go there and start describing what you experienced once you got to the location. And then he would lead you through an investigation of that target location. Mm-hmm. And then when you got done, you got up and kind of staggered out of the room and sat down at a at a, another desk and, and made sketches and, and comments about what you experience what you remembered from your yeah. experience. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the interviewer. Not mm-hmm. long ago I had a discussion with Russell Targ mm-hmm. and I asked him point blank, how is it that the remote viewing studies that were done at SRI were so very successful? At least with mm-hmm. certain percipients, really outstanding, much better than most uh, what we would call free response clairvoyance and mm-hmm. parapsychology back in the old days. And he said it's the interviewer that makes the difference. That a good interviewer knows how to elicit the psi-mediated mm-hmm. information and to distinguish it from what we now call analytical overlay. Um, I would say Russell is partially correct in that. Uh-huh. Um, it's very valuable to have a, a, a interviewer. We call them monitors in the CRV methodology. Yeah. But it's that, it didn't form, perform exactly the same function, but kind of overlapped. Um, but the the argument, uh, the one thing to say in, our, in, in apposition of that is that lots of good remote viewing has been done Solo with mm-hmm. just the viewer in the room. Okay. Yeah. Now the interviewer is very helpful, and anytime I can have an interviewer or a monitor working with me, I much prefer that. Um, and that uh, the that individual performs a number of functions. Now you remember we're talking double blind here. That person doesn't know what the target is. That's either, right. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So in that setting, um, 
one of the big values that a monitor or interviewer brings to the process is encourage you to keep going when you feel like you're ready to quit, mm. right? Uh, the temptation is to do less rather than more. It's kind of the human laziness factor that, <laughs> that factors into all of us, right? Yeah. You'll get into the thing. And, and removing can be a little excruciating at times. If you get in and you're, you're uncertain whether you're even right or not, and you're going along and you'll say, okay, well, I feel very comfortable about this. I'm going to quit before I start feeling uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And the monitor can encourage you to continue on. And very often, that's when the really good material starts mm-hmm. to show up. Another thing a monitor can do, uh, or an interviewer, either one, right, um, is, um, so left brain, or I'm sorry, uh, remote viewing skews you a bit to your right brain, okay, mm-hmm. to speak simplistically. Uh, but it really is kind of, you start getting into this kind of ethereal sort of a mode. Uh, and you, first of all, your verbal skills start to kind of get a little sloppy. And, and your written skill, your handwriting goes to heck if you're writing, you know, it just gets, becomes awful. But, uh, you're not necessarily thinking through the kinds of things that you would need to report to satisfy whatever the requirement is mm-hmm. because you're just going stream of consciousness. Yeah. Well, the monitor can be over there saying, uh, okay, okay, yeah, you've talked about this and this and this. Can you elaborate on those things rather than the flower you just discovered over here in the, over to the side, mm-hmm. right? Because remote reviewers do get, reviewers do get distracted by things that appear to be more interesting to them, yeah. right? Yeah. And a, and a monitor or interviewer, a good one can help, help bring you back mm-hmm. to the task at hand. So both extended remote viewing and controlled remote viewing use the interviewer or monitor. Yes, uh, in the classical case. Now there's mm-hmm. plenty of people who do them, uh, solo. Yeah. Uh, particularly today, yeah. But uh, although ERV is harder to do solo, ERV extended yeah. remote yes. viewing. Yeah. Okay. No, I still don't know the difference between okay. ERV so and an ERV. CRV. Here's the most obvious difference. In ERV, the viewer is laying on his or her back or in a comfortable setting, um, trying to get as close to sleep as possible without going to sleep. Uh, and in a remote in a CRV session. You're sitting at a desk with paper and pen, and you start off fully awake and fully conscious. Mm-hmm. Now, the process induces a sort of mild-altered state of consciousness. Yeah. By the time you get to the end, there's a te- technical term in remote viewing. We say you get dingy. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so by the time you get to the end in a good CRV session, you're kind of a bit loosey-goosey too. But, uh-huh. but you start off fully conscious. And... Um, and you're recording information as you go, as opposed to ERV, where you can only do it at the end when you kind of come out of it and have to do it by memory. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we see that these two approaches develop pretty early on. CRV developed by Ingo Swan, mm-hmm. ERV developed by uh, Skip Atwater. Yes. Uh, on the CRV, I want to qualify that a little bit. Ingo was probably the major developer, but he had a lot of interaction with Hal Putoff. And mm-hmm. Ingo insisted that Hal, that he, Hal get credit for playing a major role in the development of CRV. And, and Hal does acknowledge yes. that. Yeah. And they were, mm-hmm. really worked as a team. But mm-hmm. Ingo was the, 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 the prom, most prominent figure in mm-hmm. that team. Well, I, and now, since we're talking about the history of remote mm-hmm. viewing, and I did mention uh, what used to be called, and some people probably still use the term, free response mm-hmm. clairvoyance, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Zener cards. That would yes. be a forced choice. Forced choice. Yeah. Clairvoyance. You have only five choices. You have to make w- one of them. Yeah. Free response means whatever pops into your head, you report. It can be anything. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And, and that goes back a long way in the history of parapsychology. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, although, it, it, if, if you, there, is a, there are a lot of different tangents that all kind of came together with remote viewing. Mm-hmm. So, clairvoyance in general, um, although it may be splitting hairs, the, the distinguishing feature between the two is clairvoyance implies only visual, Right. And it comes from the French for clear seeing, yes. right? So it implies only visual. Remote viewing is, even though the term remote viewing is also implies only visual, I think it's a misnomer. It should have been remote perception. Mm-hmm. And after the program was shut down and Ingo and I could talk freely about all this stuff over the phone, I got in arguments with him about the term remote viewing versus remote perception. Mm-hmm. I truly believed, believe today it should have been called remote perception. Uh, but, you know, we've now got this installed base. Everybody yeah. calls it remote viewing. That's really mm-hmm. hard to change. But Sure. But when yeah. I, I think most people understand that viewing is kind of a generic word that means any form of psi-related input. Well, it's surprising how many people don't realize that. At uh. least in the field they do. Mm-hmm. The, the people who are coming into the field because of remote viewing really, truly expect it to be a, a mostly visual experience. But, in fact, in remote viewing, all the senses sensory experiences involved. Now, your senses aren't involved, but it is a sensory experience because the, the perceptual centers mm-hmm. in the brain that the senses normally stimulate are stimulated by this external input. And so, it's as if you are having a visual experience, mm-hmm. as, as if you are smelling smells. It's as if you are feeling, tech, mm-hmm. you know, the tactile, having the tactile experience. Uh, whereas clairvoyance, really, none of those extra elements are, are usually emphasized or even thought about. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably one of the biggest differences between mm-hmm. remote view and clairvoyance is that it's, remote view is a cocktail of perceptual experiences. Clairvoyance is, tends to be considered as a kind of a unidimensional one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I suppose we could point to people like uh, René Warcolier. Yes in France, who published a book about his free response clairvoyance mm-hmm. experiments, Upton Sinclair, the famous American writer uh, who had many bestsellers going back to the 1930s, mm-hmm. wrote a book called Mental mm-hmm. Radio. He even had Albert Einstein write the, wrote the forward to it. Forward yeah. to, I think, one edition of that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and interestingly, Ingo Swan, in his development of all of this, um, Really was careful to acknowledge his uh, his inspirations, mm-hmm. right? Um, and he had he freely uh, essentially praised Rene Collier and Upton Sinclair for the work they did. And Harold Sherman was someone else that he really uh, gained valuable insights and things from as he's creating remote viewing. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, the the kind of conceptual difference between Collier and Sinclair and remote viewing is that remote viewing does have this sort of clairvoyant notion. That is, that that you are uh, in some way projecting your consciousness, and I'm speaking very loosely here because we don't know really what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> you're projecting your com- your consciousness out to a distant target or, a, or an occluded target, targets that's hidden in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Warcolier and Sinclair both thought was going on with them is that it was a telepathy thing. Yeah. That it was a one mind to another. It was a sending and receiving mind of to thoughts. Mind. Yeah. And Harold Sherman is as well in Thoughts Through Space. Yes. Uh, his book title also implies mind to mind. Yes. And while, you know, you could argue that maybe they were telepathy experiments, mm-hmm. I think that there's a stronger argument that suggests they were actually 
proto remote viewing mm. experiments. They were proto, well, they involved more clairvoyance, more likely than mind to mind communication. Well, the truth is we have a lot of different terms in the field, mm -hmm. but what we lack is a good theoretical understanding of, of how this uh, actually occurs. Yeah. It's interesting. And I often get the question, well, how does this work? Yeah. And I'll say there's two different ways to answer that. The first way is I can tell you everything you do to make it, to make it happen. So I'm telling you how it works, right? But the question you're asking isn't that. The question you're asking is, you're standing in for my questioner, right? Uh, the, the question you're asking is, well, what is the causal mechanism yeah. that, that brings remote viewing to be successful? And that we don't have an answer for. And, There's and, speculation about it, but we don't have an answer. In fact, the question itself may implies that, that this is uh, a phenomenon that has a causal mechanism. Yes. <laughs> well, and in fact, it obviously has to have a causal mechanism, but whether it's any kind of causation that we understand yeah. or have ever encountered other than in this kind of intuitive way, we don't even have an answer to that question. Well, so. my best guess is that we need to pay attention to what mystics throughout history have been mm -hmm. saying, which is that uh, there is a level of consciousness at which we are one with everything. Mm -hmm. that, that's my view yeah. these days. I'm settling in on that, that somewhere deep within you, you are one with the entire universe. And I, But how you have the ability to find See, a particular piece You just piece pushed of, the how does it work question back another level. That's yeah. all you've done by, <laughs> by saying that. Well, yeah. but let's keep our focus now on the history. Yes. And... Uh, because even before you were invited to join this program mm -hmm. at Fort Meade, there there was quite a lot of history that took place. There mm -hmm. was a, a research center set up in California mm -hmm. at SRI International, a big military-industrial think tank. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I've had many interviews with Ed May and mm -hmm. uh, Russell Targ about that end of the program. Mm -hmm. Then somewhere along the line, uh, the military decided they didn't want to only rely on these California scientists. They wanted to have their own independent unit mm -hmm. that would be uh, really under military control, mm -hmm. not under control of civilians. Yeah. The, the desire there actually was um, you had the research arm out in California, and they did a, a little bit of operational work. Now, when I say operational, I mean like real-world yeah. uh, boots-on-the-ground kind of uh, intelligence collection, right? Right. So they did a little bit of operational work at SRI, but their main mission was to research the phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and military realized there's some real usefulness to this thing. We want to be able to try, you know, we want to turn it a crescent wrench and start turning bolts with it, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's why these uh, these programs became generated. Now, of course, there was also the below the 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 threshold agendas that there were people the people involved in these were really fascinated by the whole idea and they wanted to see what they could do with it mm -hmm. right um, the general that got it started in the army major general ed thompson um, now of course generals don't get down and do all this work he actually uh, it came to his attention that skip atwater in fact then he was known as fred uh, mm -hmm. fred holmes atwater is his legal name right yeah uh, Skip Hatwater uh, had an interest in this from a counterintelligence perspective. He, I, I won't go. You'll have to get Skip on sometime. But yeah. uh, he had a very interesting um, path that brought him to this. Mm -hmm. And General Thompson became aware that that Skip was interested. So directly, he actually reached down through all those echelons and and ordered a second lieutenant, 
Skip might have been a first lieutenant. He was a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Ordered a lieutenant to create this program. And that's very rare that a general will, will get down there mm-hmm. like that and do that. But, uh, but that gave, of course, Skip the blessing of the high, the, really the highest uh, ranking officer in the Army intelligence world. Um, to actually do something here, and then they cre- that was where the Army program came from. Now, uh, the Air Force had had an informal program earlier under a gentleman named Dale Graff, mm-hmm. who really doesn't get the attention he should in, in his contributions to this field. Um, but Dale ran a program there for a while until he went over to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Wright-Patterson uh, working for the Air Force. Yeah. yeah. And as, as I recall from our earlier conversation, he didn't really have a formal unit, but he, he was sort of working uh, independently and a, a little bit yeah. informally. Yeah. Now, he did have a sanction of his superiors to do this, but yeah. there was no line item in the budget to manage this program. It was sort of just out of height, as mm-hmm. they say, you know, and had a few folks, uh, Air Force enlisted folks who were interested in the program or interested in the thing and yeah. invited them in, and that was the sort of a part-time thing they did. Quite independent of uh, Skip Atwater. Yes. Yes. And uh, now you mentioned General Thompson as mm-hmm. being a key figure. How how did he get involved? Well, um, I don't know exactly all the background from him, but he did know about the program. He got briefed. Uh, my recollection is he might even have gone out to SRI to get a full briefing on the program. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those folks that, this is pretty darn cool. Let's see what we can do with it. And what was his position in, within the Army at, at that at time? At the time, he was what they called the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence in the Army. So he was the Senior Army Staff Officer over Intelligence. Um, and... Uh, you really didn't get more senior than that in the army in terms of power and mm-hmm. position. So, uh, and since he became, you know, uh, interested in it, he was able to make this, at least get this started. Cause I've um, always associated the program largely with General Stubblebine. Yeah. Stubblebine came along later, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, he was actually a great asset. He was an asset and a detriment to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an asset in the sense that he saved the program from being terminated. Um, Stubblebine. By, Stubblebine did, yeah. Um, the, uh, I remember all the details, but uh, Perry, who was later defense secretary, was uh, uh, chief of staff of DOD, or not chief of staff, assistant uh Deputy or something in the in the DOD, and he issued a memorandum that said that no Army research funds could be used for this kind of research, mm-hmm. and um, that was what they were living off of. And if you ter- terminate the funding, then the program goes away. Right. And that was his goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, William Perry, his first name. And that was his goal. He wanted to get rid of the program. Uh, but Stubblebine kind of thumbed his nose at him and said, "Well, all right then. I'm I'm going to pay for it out of." Uh, the intelligence security commands, that was his command, the intelligence mm-hmm. security command. I'm going to pay for it out of my budget. I, you know, just pull it out of hide again, you know, took it away from, you know, they all have discretionary funds in these, in these commands and they need them mm-hmm. for, for unexpected contingencies. Mm-hmm. And he just said, I'm going to pay for this. And so for a, two or three years, that's how we got funded money out of the INSCOM budget directly without mm-hmm. it being inappropriated. So it it sounds like at, at the higher echelons within the army, uh, there was some controversy. Yes, that's the uh, well. That's one of the many interesting pieces of the saga is that you had people who are absolutely adamant supporters of this, mm-hmm. and they were in position to help make sure it stayed alive. 
you had people who were absolute adamant detractors, did not want to have it, have, didn't feel like the Army ought to be in it, didn't believe in it, felt threatened by it, whatever. Mm-hmm. All of that, they all had different kind of motivations um, who were doing their best to kill it. And so it was on this kind of rocky <laughs> landscape, you know, for quite a while. Yeah. Um, in fact, forever. It was, that was always the issue. But, of course, many federal programs are like that because yeah. you have to every year go back and justify the money that's being spent on it and, and make sure Congress appropriates you know, uh, the amount of money that you need. Mm-hmm. And, and usually they don't appropriate enough. And then you got to, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it was a, a tangled mess of bureaucracy in addition to all this excitement we were doing. But I gather at some point the funding actually was... Uh, directly appropriated but from Congress. Yes. What what happened was, um, here's the curse that Sullivan brought. He got a little too in love with this stuff and started doing kind of wacky things. And uh, there were a couple of semi-scandals that happened under his watch. And the Army hierarchy said, this is just looking bad for the Army. making the Army look bad. We've got to do something about this. So they essentially forced Stubblebine to retire. And they brought in an actually formerly an artillery officer who'd been rebranched into military intelligence and, and uh, brought him into clean house, mm-hmm. right? So he came in and his first instinct. Can you tell me who that was? Yeah, that was his, uh, General Soyster. Hmm. I know his first name too, but it's not coming to me right now. <laughs> right. Soyster. Yeah. Um, Soyster came in and he had, they had essentially told him, do something about this. And so he was going to terminate the program. But what they didn't realize, the ones that got rid of the program, is that there was enough congressional and senatorial interest in the program and in, in the higher echelons of the intelligence community interest in it that they couldn't kill it. Mm-hmm. But they could find another home for it. So we, they ended up sending us all lock, stock, and barrel off to Defense Intelligence Agency. Now, the way it works is you have the Army and the Air Force, all of the, these services with their intelligence services. Mm-hmm. DIA is one echelon up. Mm-hmm. So Defense Intelligence Agency supervises the intelligence world for the services. Mm-hmm. And so... It can tell these guys what to do. These guys can't tell it what to do. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. So that was a good home for it. Uh-huh. And so we ended up there for for uh, several years, actually, until the prog- program was terminated. Yeah. And how long were you in the program? I was in there from August of 1983 to August of 1990. So a total of seven years. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I imagine, you, you witnessed quite a bit of evolution. Yes, um, a, a fair amount of turmoil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a fair amount of turmoil. Um, evolution in terms of refining the process. Uh, evolution in terms of getting some really awesome results, some really amazing results. And then, of course, there was the results that didn't work. That's the one thing about remote viewing is that um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The times when it works well is very obvious that it worked, and it's very obvious that there's only one explanation, that it involves some kind of extrasensory perception. Um, when it doesn't work, you have no idea why it didn't work. <laughs> mm. So, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, along the way, uh, various um, modifications of the, of the basic protocol mm-hmm. were developed. Yeah. So, um, let's go back to the Post e extended remote viewing yeah. days, okay? Yeah. Although there, we always used extended remote viewing throughout the life of the program, but mm-hmm. controlled remote viewing was introduced 
uh, between 82 and 84, 85, okay? And so what happened was Stubblebine wanted to be able to train your average soldier to do this stuff. But uh, most of what they'd worked with was people that showed some kind of, of uh, psychic ability, mm-hmm. and they weren't trained. They were kind of found, mm-hmm. right? Now, what was observed at uh, SRI was that the more they did it, the more uh, consistent their results were and the more often they were on signal oh. line, right? Mm-hmm. Then people improved over time. Well, they at least improved in reliability, uh-huh. okay? Because um, sometimes the very first or second remote viewing work somebody did was just amazing, yeah. and then it kind of fell off from right. there, and then they then he brought it back up, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it would be very hard to improve on the absolute best remote viewing so that we're done. Yeah. But where you improved was in in doing that kind of work more often. Consistency. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the other part of it is taking somebody who doesn't know anything about it, how to do it. And that's where the training comes in, bringing and, them up to the point where hopefully they reach that kind of consistency or at least improve their I abilities. mean, and in your case, uh, though you had an earlier interest in ESP, yeah. you, you were skeptical. You didn't consider yourself a person who could exhibit ESP when you started. Up to that point, I had nothing that could even be identified as a psychic experience. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And, uh, and I never heard the two words remote viewing together. I was totally naive about all this. I had no idea that any of this existed. Mm-hmm. So I was about as close to a blank slate as you could get coming to the program. Yeah. And so you would be an example of uh, a person who was trained to do yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, which brings me back to where I was, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, in order to uh, satisfy Stubblebine's desire to come up with a training program, Ingo and Hal started working on this. And, and the, the point of what they're trying to do is identify what had worked for, psyche, for remote viewers up to that point, what had proven successful, what had proven not successful. And then with that as their foundation, they had to then experiment with all kinds of different ways of approaching it. And essentially, it was a trial and error brute force kind of research effort. They did thousands of remote viewing sessions, Hal and Ingo together. Uh-huh. And they would take notes on what, what had worked that time and what didn't. Now sometimes uh, something will work one time, not another, and then another time. So they had to keep track of that too, right? Literally and, thousands. Yes, literally thousands. Now, that yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that was... Um, they they were they sort of started on this in the late seventies. Um, Stubblebine didn't come on the scene until about eighty one, but that's when it became a a prominent effort. Yeah. But they had in the meantime been researching all this stuff. And they, they had they had been exposed to the subliminal perception research, uh, to the split brain research, all of which plays a role, mm-hmm. not in necessarily the ESP part because the nine tenths of this is the perception psychology part, right? Right, because human psychology is probably the biggest obstacle to doing this well. Mm-hmm. So they had been focusing on both sides of this, both the whatever that signal is coming in and mm-hmm. how to perceive it, and then all the processing and the management that goes on inside the person's head as they're trying to decode right. that signal. So they were working on all that stuff, and over time, um, they came up with this uh, currently six-stage process mm-hmm. where you first learn just to get the just general uh, first impressions, they call it gestalt, yep. gestalt of the target, is it land, is it water, is it structure, you know. Uh, just the nature of it. And then you get into sensory experience where you get the, the smell, sounds, tastes, what I mean, smell, sounds, tastes, 
visuals like colors and quality of light and uh, tactile tactile yes thank you <laughs> yeah uh, you get those things come in there's a, a basket of sensory experience mm -hmm. and then you get into uh the next stage, stage three, is where you start to make sketches and you start to bring the dimensionality of it together in your mind. Uh, so let me use an example here. I use the Eiffel Tower as an example because I don't use it as a target. None yeah. of my students will ever get the Eiffel Tower as a target, so I'm free to use it as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say the target is the Eiffel Tower. It's a training target because that's what you'd use the Eiffel Tower for. It wouldn't be an operational target. Uh, you want the viewer to describe the Eiffel Tower. The first thing to know is that the viewer cannot know what the target is. Right. It consciously is not allowed to know what the target is. And if you're in a training or an operational, I mean, if you're in an operational or experimental research session, you don't want the monitor to know what the target is either. You want it to be double blind. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, what happens is the viewer starts out uh, blind to the target and then starts to, uh, some other time we'll talk about how you get them to recognize where they need yeah. to go. Well, we've already done two interviews on the training process. Okay, I can't remember what I said yeah, in there. Yeah, so, we, yeah, we did. We had the initial stages and then a second interview oh, on, okay. so on I don't the have advanced to stages. So we don't need to repeat that now, but what I'm really interested okay. in is So this. then I'll put that on pause there. I'll okay. go ahead and ask you a question because I may be going where you want me to go. Yeah, anyway. well, uh, I mean... The program closed officially, as far as we know, as far as I know, mm -hmm. in around 1996. It was 95. Uh, it was closed on June 30th, 1995. And subsequently, uh -huh. many of the people who were involved in the program began moving into the private sector mm -hmm. and setting up, uh, such as you have done. You have a company called Remote Viewing Instructional Services. Mm -hmm. I, I I think I forgot to mention that That's in fine. the introduction. That's a good, good product I'm, placement. I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah. Happy to mention it now. Uh, but, you, but you are among, uh, let's say, a dozen other people mm. who were through the program at Fort Meade or had something to do with the research at SRI. Who and, sort of went public. Yeah. yeah. Or worked with Dale Graff. In, in the Air Force, and mm -hmm. I don't know how many other people were influenced, oh, right, be, yeah. because let's face it, the books were being written, and, mm -hmm. and, and the, we're at a point in time in history now where it's fair to assume that, I, I'm going to say that millions of people are now familiar with the term remote viewing, have read books, have watched mm -hmm. videos, have gone through training programs. Mm -hmm. There are many different approaches that emerged out of it, mm -hmm. and today... Uh, there's a, a, almost like a supermarket of courses you could take. Yeah, smorgasbord. Yeah, yeah smorgasbord yeah, might yeah. be the right word. Uh, so, although people don't, most people don't know what that means anymore. But a buffet, let's say a buffet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, let, let's do kind of cut to the chase here. I think yeah. that's a good point. So when the program was shut down, there were really three methodologies being practiced there. One was CRV, and I've just talked about mm -hmm. that. The other was ERV or extended remote right. viewing. That was done. Relatively rarely, but it was still done. Mm -hmm. uh, there was another methodology called WRV for written remote viewing. Um, that one was, even within the office, kind of controversial because it involved a something that was similar to a kind of a blend of automatic writing and channeling. Oh. Right. Um, the, the people in charge, including Dale Graff, were okay with it because they said, it doesn't matter how you do it. If you're getting real data, do it that way. Yeah, And back then, we were a little worried about that because we didn't want to be associated with channeling or any of that kind of stuff, right? But today, I kind of see their point, and that's sort of my attitude, too. If it works, don't mess with it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not the kind of thing you do, 
then go ahead and, and, and if you're producing legitimate results, you know, high quality to legitimate results, because some of the methodologies produce just mediocre kind of results. Right. But if you're producing high quality legitimate results, and who cares what you call it or what, how you do it, right? Well, there's the sociology of the that's, phenomenon. That's the side thing, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the side thing. In terms of just practical use, it doesn't matter. In terms of, uh, like, social acceptance or, or acceptance by mainstream science or whatever, then you have to start thinking about images and stuff. Or right? even critics of the program who right. might say, oh, they're bringing in witches. The, yes, that was a problem. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yes, that's a, that's an unsavory element that entered in. People started name calling. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, okay. So those are the three methodologies. Well, um, long about the declassification. That wasn't long about the declassification. Uh, well, it was about four months later um, on Nightline. Ted Koppel, his whole program was dedicated to this weird psychic spy program that the military had yeah. just. Just closed down and declassified. Then he had Ed May on there. He had a, a customs agent who actually used remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, he had uh, Joe McMoneagle. Dale was on there. Um, I, oh, and uh, um, um, Keith Harari, as I recall. I don't remember him. Maybe he was. Yeah. I don't remember him. But uh, also um, Gates, Bill, uh, not Bill Gates, um, Robert Gates, mm-hmm. yeah, who was the, uh, at, you know, one time he was the uh, CIA, well, later he was the CIA so, chief. He'd been, sec- he was going to be Secretary of Defense. Yeah. He'd been, in, he'd been at least in the upper echelons in the intelligence world mm-hmm. for a long time. And he was and, somewhat hostile to the yes, program. Yes, he said at no time was this ever used to determine policy, mm-hmm. which is a little bit misleading because uh, very little intelligence is ever used to determine policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because policy is a, a fairly complicated, you know, formulation of policy, fairly complicated, high order level of thing, which a whole bunch of ingredients go into. Mm-hmm. Um, it, remote viewing was used tactically and strategically on the ground successfully. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, he never said that, yeah. right? Didn't have to do with policy, it had to do with solving problems, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, Koppel has this on. And the world goes nuts. There's like dozens and dozens of radio or of, uh, yes. of uh, newspaper articles, um, right about the same time as when uh, this was really the first major public revelation. Yes. Al- although there had been other. Well, yeah, Jack Anderson, who I, I actually married his managing editor. Yes, we talked the, about that yes, previously. He yeah. had been wa- he had been publishing stuff. It, it was garbled. Mm-hmm. I mean, he couldn't get the clear story, but he was trying really yeah. hard. So it had come out, but this was the first yeah. full official acknowledgement that it existed. There were, I suppose you could say there were rumors prior to that time. Rumors that most people had never heard. And, and, and books. But, I mean, put off and targ, published Mind Reach right. back in the 1970s. Which carefully avoided any acknowledgement of military. No, but yeah. published all a lot of data about yes. remote viewing. Yes, and there have been articles in journals and stuff. And yeah. McMonagall even had published his book in 93, mm-hmm. his first book. He also avoided any connection with the military. He associated it all with the Monroe Institute. Yeah. So... Um, so, yeah, but this is the first official real, yep, everybody knows this is real now mm-hmm. stuff. And then the newspaper picked it up. And there were two phenomena that were happening in the social world, right? One was late night paranormal radio shows. Yes. Uh, most notably Art Bell and his Coast to Coast show. Mm-hmm. The other one is the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And both of those things happened at the same time yeah. that this program was revealed. And it got picked up in those two venues. And 
went crazy, mm-hmm. literally went crazy. Uh, remote viewing really was what made Art Bell really big. Mm-hmm. Um, he got Ed Dames on there. Yes, who, um, who, as a frequent guest. As a frequent guest uh-huh. with lots of wild stories. And now, let's talk about Ed Dames for a yeah. moment. People, Many people won't know who he is. What was his role at the, in the Fort Meade program? So Ed um, had been a consumer of our products. In a in a sister unit that mm-hmm. didn't didn't do remote viewing, did regular intelligence collection. Um, mm-hmm. he in had, other words, was, he he uh, created uh, various tasks for the yes. Fort Meade unit. That's right. He made requests, and we tried to fulfill them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he was fascinated by this. He really, 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 really wanted to be in it, um, but he couldn't get in because he was in the wrong chain of command, and uh, the people at Fort Meade were a little leery of him mm-hmm. because he tended to be in, over-enthusiastic about some things. Yeah. Um, ultimately, he got his unit to sponsor him and get included on the training contract. So when we were going to SRI to get trained in CRV, he got to come along and be one of the four of us who were trained by Ingo. Oh. Um, he got up through stage three, and then the contract ended, and he went back to his unit. And we didn't see him again, officially didn't see him again for two years. Um, then when the program was transferred to DIA, they brought Ed Dames in to be a, a monitor and a project manager. He, he was not brought in to be a remote viewer. Hmm. Um, they specifically wanted him in those kinds of administrative roles. Um, so... He was doing that, and then he got involved in the training, and he, he ultimately didn't do a lot of remote viewing in the unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I counted nine sessions that he did, and most of us did over a thousand. You know. I, I see. Yeah. Um, but he became very well-known later on because he set up a company for the purpose of training, did. one of the very first uh, businesses. Yes, he started SciTech, mm-hmm. P-S-I-T-E-C-H, and he was yeah. at the time, he'd retired and moved to New Mexico. So I created the first SciTech logo for him. I was playing around with desktop publishing, and I created it. It involved the uh, the Sun Eye, you know, or the the, Air, the New Mexico Sun mm-hmm. logo with an eye in it, uh-huh. you know, and, and so... Uh, he and I was actually there for the founding of SciTech. It was in his house, and uh, this is before he moved to New Mexico, before he even retired from the army, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, a little town in Maryland near Fort Meade. And um, so he brought together a lot of yeah. the, the people involved. As he I did. recall, uh, my friend John Alexander was on his was board. on his board. Stubblebine was on his board. Um, he got letters of endorsement from Ingo Swan. I and Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley and some other folks worked as viewers for him. Uh, and this was in 1989. So mm-hmm. this is before he even retired. Mm-hmm. So what he was doing is probably technically illegal. Mm-hmm. But the Army wasn't paying attention to this back then, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so he went on, retired, went out to New Mexico. And then before the thing was declassified, he started talking about it. Mm-hmm. Right, and that may have been one of the things that led to the declassification. Was Ed and and another one of our folks there, Dave Morehouse, started talking about it in public and 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 making claims and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and there are reports in the in the Stargate archives that the CIA declassified people saying, "You won't believe what Ed Dames did this." <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, but but Dames, the interesting thing about him is is he. He really, he was very, he's very sensational. Mm-hmm. So he got a lot of people's attention about remote viewing. So the upside of Ed Dames was he brought a lot of people to the field. The downside is that he didn't just stop at what was true. He went way beyond what was true. 
And so there's a, a lot of these people came in, came in with misconceptions about what remote mm. really was. And plus it alienated a lot of the mainstream scientists who might otherwise have been interested. Yeah. As, as I recall, at that time, there were claims being made about 100% accuracy yes. and military-grade remote yeah. viewing. And, yeah. And, and, of course, uh, also they began uh, uh, offering training programs that were uh, rather high-priced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mine are high-priced, too, so I don't quibble with that. But okay. <laughs> Well, and we can talk about that. Actually, maybe we ought to talk about that at some point. Um, but, but yeah, he was offering these training programs, and uh, he 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 went with a new terminology, mm-hmm. which he called uh, TRV mm-hmm. for technical remote viewing. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, so he had he had taken the old army protocol. And, and methodology, and he had re- recreated, he'd added enhanced and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and this new thing called technical remote viewing. So he put his own twist on it. Yeah, well, the interesting thing was, at first, he was just passing out the same old Army manual. Oh. So if he had trained, changed it, it must have been only a name change. At so, that point. so there was an Army manual. <laughs> yes. Well, it was, I'm sorry, I said Army, but it was DIA. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote it. Well, yeah. I, I edited it. There, there edited was, it. I didn't know that there actually yeah. was a manual. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's called the, the Coordinate Remote Viewing Manual, May 1985. Uh-huh. And it's about that thick. And the, so CRV yeah. could mean coordinate remote viewing yeah. or controlled yeah. remote viewing. And it refers to the same thing. Yeah. Uh, originally, Ingo wanted to call it controlled remote viewing. But they call it coordinate remote viewing instead because they, originally they were targeting you with a geographic coordinate. Yeah. And they wanted to do that because they felt like the military understand that a little better. Sure. You know, they understand coordinate better mm-hmm. than It's like controlled. targeting artillery or something. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, but once it got declassified and there was uh, more flexibility, Ingo made a public request that it be called controlled remote viewing. And so all of us call it that from now on. And frankly, it is a better term because we don't actually use latitude and longitude anymore yeah. to target viewers. And we, uh, and the controlled refers to the fact that you're essentially establishing some control over this process. Instead of just letting it be a laissez-faire, ad hoc, whatever happens kind of thing, mm-hmm. you actually are imposing some discipline on it to help direct it to what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So it's really a good term for it. Okay. Yeah. So how did TRV differ from CRV? Well, when it first started, it was identical. Mm-hmm. It just, there's a different cover on the manual. Yeah. <clears throat> and then as time went on, Ed wanted to then... Uh, Created as a uh, product, so uh, you could um, so that he could put it on videotape, and make it a uh, a home study kind of a course. Mm-hmm. And he was, of course, in the frontier on that kind of thing as well. And that, now there are quite a few different home study yes, courses there available. Are. I even have one. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so he wanted to to do that, but the actual methodology is designed for live training, for mm-hmm. training people in person. Yeah. And that's when it is actually the most effective, mm-hmm. uh, in my experience. Well, because you get feedback. Uh, yes. And, and more of a personal relationship with You can with get your questions instructor. answered instantly. Yeah. There's more encouragement. There's mm-hmm. lots of ways why that's better, right? Okay. But, but he wanted to be able to mass market, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's going to go on video. So he started simplifying. Yeah. He created a, a, uh, not a format, a template, right? Mm-hmm. Templates to do things on. Um, which, yes, it made it easier to present in a mass media kind of a format. But the problem is it also tended to restrict the process and, I think, add uh, 
add boundaries to it that made it less efficacious, in mm. my opinion. Okay. Right? Uh, and that continued until today. He really, what he teaches, he, and I, he doesn't even call it TRV anymore because he lost the rights to it in a court fight a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does SciTech still exist? It is, does, but he has nothing to do with it. Okay. Yeah, his former girlfriend um, and her then-husband sued him and uh, got the rights to SciTech and to all everything associated with including the TRV name. I see. So he had to go out and kind of reinvent what he was doing again. So mm-hmm. what he does now, as near as I can tell, it only has a, a faint resemblance to the original CRV. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he has a name for what he does okay. currently. I could be wrong about that, but mm-hmm. I don't think he does. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that, that accounts for one name change, right? Yeah. CRV to TRV, which started not being much different, but then morphed away from the, the CRV. Uh, he had another student in Courtney Brown who came in 1993 before any of this got revealed. Yes. And spent 13 days, 12 or 13 days with Ed and uh, got trained by him. And He was a professor. He's, he's, a, he's still a professor at Emory University. Yeah. Uh, and um, in political science mm-hmm. is his field. And uh, he came and he had, he'd spent 20 years in transcendental meditation mm-hmm. and uh, he was also had as much of a fascination with UFOs and extraterrestrials as Ed Dames did. And so he wrote a book uh, after that, published a book in which he tied remote viewing very deeply into the UFO ET kind of a thing. And he generally created his own methodology, which he called SRV for scientific remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Okay, And if you go on his uh, website, which Farsight.com, I think. The Farsight uh, you know, Institute. Yes, in, yeah. Recall. Um, yeah. He has free courses in SRV. Right mm-hmm. Now, the difference there is that he took TRV, which is already a derivation of CRV, right? Mm-hmm. And derived it further and injected, um, yeah, I'm not an expert on TM, but I, I think I see elements of transcendental meditation involved in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, added some metaphysical kind of elements like, well, one thing is kind of science fiction-y of subspace. He had subspace, you know, which I find very dubious myself yeah. because nobody knows what the heck that is. Nobody's ever shown that it exists, right? Mm-hmm. But, but uh, he's added that in kind of a Star trek kind of a thing okay. and other elements that he's, he's uh, borrowed. And so then he comes up with scientific remote viewing. Well, I'm not sure how scientific it is, but it is an approach, and some people have had some success. Well, I think it's fair to say, talking about the Farsight Institute and Courtney Mm -hmm. Brown, that there was, I'd have to call it a huge scandal. Yeah. And uh, perhaps since we're talking about the history of the field, it should be addressed. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's kind of an unpleasant chapter, but... So what happened was the comet Hale-Bopp was coming into our solar system in 1997. And it was detected by, I guess, Hale and Bopp. I don't know. (laughs) Astronomers. And uh, someone sent Courtney some uh, doctored photographs of the comet that seemed to show a companion of some sort along with the comet, which Courtney Brown then remote had his, his... uh, professional remote viewers, remote view, people he trained in this SRV methodology. Uh, and they reported it was a giant alien spaceship that was coming to Earth to deliver a message. Mm-hmm. And this was, he was on Art Bell talking about this on Coast to Coast, and uh, and uh, there's lots of discussion about it. And and at some point, Heaven's Gate, 30, 39 people, I believe, was committed suicide because they wanted to get on the spaceship that was accompanying It, it was a cult. Yeah. 
and, yeah, and the, cult, the yeah. cult leaders picked up on this conversation yeah. that Courtney Brown had had, and 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 said, "Yes, the aliens are coming for us, and yeah. if uh, if we Don't, commit suicide, they will be able to transport us in their UFO." Yeah, yeah. And thirty nine people committed suicide. Yes. Now, um, Courtney Brown's belief about this thing wasn't the total cause of that. I mm-hmm. mean, I've since researched that a bit, and they probably would have done it anyway. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of a catalyst in a way, yeah. and at least appears to have been a kind of a catalyst. So, um, <clears throat> It created a terrible cloud over the whole field yes. of remote viewing in terms of people's gullibility. Yeah, and, and especially became a problem when uh, they discovered that the uh, the photographs were actually fake, mm-hmm. that there wasn't any such companion. And uh, and then uh, Art Bell actually was absolutely livid about this. He kicked Courtney Brown off the air because he, first of all, tried to hold his feet to the fire and then said, you know, he kicked him off the air and would not allow him to ever come back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I know, I don't think Courtney's been on Coast to Coast since. No, but he continues yeah. to yes. write and research and train people in, mm-hmm. in remote viewing and uh, do do whatever he can to repair his reputation from that terrible yeah. mistake. But it does show one of the the weaknesses of remote viewing, yeah. and, and which is that uh, in people can be misled. Remote viewers uh, can be uh, influenced by things they hear or learn yeah. about. Oh, absolutely, and and and. One of the qualities, if you intend to be a serious remote viewer, one of the qualities you have to have is to be very careful about what you believe and what you don't believe. Yeah. And don't even necessarily believe the stuff you perceive because you can be wrong in a remote viewing session, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why uh, Ingo always insisted that if you want to count it as real remote viewing, you have to be remote viewing in principle feedbackable targets. In other words, targets that you can actually, in principle at least, get feedback on. Yeah. Uh, so um, that's just why when I do my training, I only give my students real-world targets. And the reason is, is if you can't get feedback, you can't see how well you did. Yeah. So you can't learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, need to have, um, you need to have actually a concrete relationship to the target so you can determine, oh, right, I got this right, I got that wrong. Next time I'm going to not do that, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this, right? So, um, so yeah, Courtney has continued to focus on conspiracy and otherworldly kinds of targets and and. and uh, Leading, you know, bleeding edge, uh, speculative kind of material. So, um, it, a lot of people find that attractive. A lot of people are fascinated by that kind of thing. So, he does serve a certain certain sector of the population out there. There's interest in remote viewing of who killed JFK, or I don't think he's ever done Bigfoot, but he had, might be tempted to do something like that. Um, he he's tried to he set up a an experiment that he hoped would show the existence of an actual multiverse, you know, try and solve his physics question, a cosmological question, really, you know, about the multiverse. Um, and, you know, he's trying to do those kinds of mm-hmm. things. He just goes on these actually outward-edged yeah. kind of stuff, uh, which, although, led to another XRV, uh, uh-huh. sort of. So he had a, uh, I guess, disciple, Prudence Calabrese, right? Mm. And she was on board, and it's hard to tell. I think she had something to do with the Hale-Bopp fiasco. Um, but uh, when it was all over with, she blamed Courtney Brown for the whole thing. And I think she probably was was also, you know, on board at the time. Uh, but uh, she formed her own methodology, which she called different times. One is uh, 
Transdimensional Systems was a company, and people usually refer to her methodology as that. Uh, and uh, and but she called it Gnosomatics, K N O K N O S O M A T I C H. Okay. C S. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So Gnosomatics. So essentially from the from the Greek for knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Or at least one form. Gnosis. For, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gnosis. Um, and uh, it was essentially SRV. So we have CRV, TRV, SRV. Now we have this Gnosomatics, which is essentially SRV, but with her own refinements mm-hmm. added. And one of the things she did, and she thought she was inventing it, <clears throat> she actually went back to some of the original Ingo methodology, um, thinking that it was, that this idea was was a better approach. And it is. It is a better approach. You know, a lot of the really efficacious stuff from CRV is kind of bred, bred out of it as it's come downstream through these different variations that mm. people have come up with. Uh, and so she sort of inadvertently reinvented the wheel in a way. Um, she has disappeared from the remote viewing world, but uh, there are some folks out there who still mm-hmm. practice it, and there's some videos online mm-hmm. that that she goes through, through and explains what it is she does. Yeah. So, but that is yet another methodology mm-hmm. there, right? Um, so to go back up to CRV, there's actually more than one flavor of CRV, right? Uh-huh. So I I learned the Ingo methodology. I learned it directly from Ingo and Hal, and. Um, and I try and approach it exactly the way Ingo did. Now, there's a couple of things I changed. And unlike the rest of these guys, I actually admit when I change something, right? Yeah, okay. I tell people because I want them to have full disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. So um, one of them is that Ingo was absolutely convinced that the autonomic nervous system played a role in what we call ideograms, that kind of thing. Well, we know now that that's not true because the, okay. yeah, the, the uh, autonomic nervous system doesn't control hand and hand and arm movements, uh-huh. right, for example. Um, so I don't teach that anymore, but mm-hmm. I tell people mm-hmm. about that when I teach my classes. Um, so, um, but Lynn Buchanan teaches CRV. Yes. But he has taken the CRV methodology and put his own brand on it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, he changed all the terminology um, so that, it, for example, in remote in CRV Ingo version, um, you have what's called analytical overlay, which yes. is mental noise is generated by mm-hmm. your left brain. Uh, Lynn has calls that now stray cat. Stray cat. Yeah, yeah. It's some kind mm-hmm. of uh, acronym. I don't recall how, how it breaks <laughs> out, but he calls yeah. it a stray cat. Um, that's fine. I don't care if he tra- changes tra- the terminology, you know, but it does change the system somewhat. And then he's added some stuff to it uh, mm-hmm. that Ingo didn't have, like. Um, um, Oh shoot! I can't think of it right now. It's where you get contaminated and polluted, you know, and mm. uh, that's not the right term. Whatever, whatever. He's added some stuff, and okay. and, and his uh, doctrine on some elements are, are much different than how Ingo used to teach it. Mm-hmm. And again, in this case, I'm not going to tell you whether it's better or worse. I mean, that is the results tell yeah. that. And some of his folks have done some really amazing stuff, mm-hmm. and so it does work apparently. Yeah. You know. Um, but then some of his students have carried on with their 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 version of his version of CRV. Well, that know? seems to be so, the way it goes. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. At, at this point, it's fair to say that thousands of people have been trained. Yes, yes. Uh, particularly, I mean, Dames is his his videos and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. If you count that as training, which and we, we most haven't even do. talked about the Mobius Group, which was no, sort of independent of the military of, entirely. Track. Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, um, it, it's interesting. I, I kind of see the, ev- 
I don't want to call it evolution because some of it isn't evolutionary, yeah. right? Some of it is actually devolutionary, uh, the way CRV has been kind of parceled out into all mm-hmm. these different little mm-hmm. packets. Uh, uh, part of it is a function of ego. People who, uh, part of it's ego, part of it's p- marketing, right? So um, you need to differentiate yourself from other people so people will have a reason to come to you instead of somebody else. Yeah. So they make their own mark, their own mm-hmm. branding and that kind of thing. In, in other words, you're competing against your former colleagues. Well, I am, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Although my sense is that there's a lot of camaraderie. Practically every serious remote viewer has some connection with the International Remote Viewing Association, I imagine. Well, yeah, Joe doesn't. Joe McMoneyo doesn't okay. have anything to do with this. But uh, And uh, Dave Morehouse doesn't. Well, he's the other CRVer, right? Mm. And so he also teaches or taught, I'm not sure what his status is right now, CRV. Yeah. But he also added some things and took some things yeah. away. So so just because it says controlled remote viewing doesn't necessarily mean it's an Ingo style. In other, in other words, you, you might take several different remote viewing courses that say they're teaching CRV and they'll and be all different. be a bit different. Yeah. And I've had students that do that. Mm-hmm. I've had students that have taken my classes, taking classes from Lynn and Dave and Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure about anybody else, but there might be. And then, uh, and then you get a, a certain category of people, and I suppose I consider myself amongst them, who mm-hmm. started doing remote viewing, yeah. and it worked right away, and never took any training at all. Which brings us to another category I have, which yeah. is GRV, uh-huh. for generic remote viewing. Yeah. And, and this is the point I like to make often, because you get these... Um, CRV Nazis, right? You get people who think the whole world revolves around CRV, controlled yeah. remote viewing. They think that that's what everybody has done, always done, and always will do. Mm-hmm. They don't realize there's a whole history of the remote viewing world before CRV was developed in the early 80s yeah. where there were remote viewers doing it however they did it, right? Yeah. They sort of, everybody had their own different kind of style and yeah. approach that were doing work every bit as good and often better than what most of the CRV CRVers mm-hmm. today are doing. CRV is not a magic bullet. It's a very effective way of helping someone who has no skills, uh, has not developed these skills, to develop them in a mm-hmm. relatively quick period of time. But uh, but there are people who do a marvelous remote viewing without ever even hearing the acronym mm-hmm. CRV, and people need to realize that. But but I suppose the important thing to say about CRV goes back to your own experience. It mm-hmm. took you, a person who would never considered yourself in the least bit mm-hmm. psychic, and now you train. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, Paul Smith, what a pleasure to be with you. I know we're going to have more conversations mm-hmm. while you're here in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been uh, an excellent overview of uh, how the field has evolved uh, up until this point. Thank you for being with me. Oh, you are welcome. I appreciate it. And thank you for being with us.